many years back, I met a guy named Joe, and we became friends. And Joe is from Minnesota, and in one of our first conversations, we realized that we shared an affinity for several musicians from Minnesota, and especially Bob Dylan. And one afternoon, as we got a little bit wound up talking about Dylan and trying to express what he meant to each of us, my friend Joe suddenly blurted out the solemn and ultimate pronouncement. Dylan is oceanic. And I still think that's the greatest single word description for Dylan that I've heard. So I was thinking more about that metaphor, Dylan as the ocean, and I think it's pretty good, right? The ocean is vast and distant, but also often close. You can dive into the ocean if you want to, or just dip your toe at the edge. And you can certainly live without the ocean, but once you've swum in the sea, it's hard to forget. The ocean is deep, but also shallow. The ocean can be cold or warm, inviting or stormy. The ocean can break your heart, but the waves roll on. This is episode 15 of A Bob Dylan Primer. Goodbye is too good a word. On May 24, 2020, Bob Dylan turned 79 years old. In the year 2020, Dylan has been writing songs and performing professionally for just about 60 years. We're not quite up to 2000 yet in this series, but we will get there in this episode, I promise. We left off in the last episode with the album Tempest, which was released in 2012. It would be several years before Dylan released any new original material, but the second decade of the 21st century still brought many fascinating developments along the Dylan Trail. In March of 2016, there was an announcement from the Dylan office that the University of Tulsa, along with the George Kaiser Family Foundation, had purchased what they were calling the Bob Dylan Archive, which at that time was said to comprise about 6,000 items, including written drafts of Dylan's songs, master recordings, letters, and photographs. This was a cool thing to have happen, and Dylan fans were happy that these precious objects would be preserved. But the enormity of what Dylan and the Archive had planned for the future wasn't yet clear. I'm going to talk more about the Archive in a little bit. But first, there was another piece of news in 2016 that took a much more immediate hold of the public's imagination. On October 13, 2016, word got out that Bob Dylan was being awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. On the day of the momentous announcement, Dylan was playing a show in Las Vegas, but made no comment from the stage about the award. Reactions to Dylan getting the honor ran the gamut, as you can imagine. Dylan fans were mostly thrilled, and so were a lot of other people. And then there were a lot of grousers and boohooers who didn't think Dylan's work should be considered as literature no matter how good his songs are. Dylan himself kept silent on the matter for several weeks, until he told a journalist that getting the award was amazing, incredible. The following month, the Swedish Academy announced that Dylan would not be traveling to Stockholm for the award ceremony due to prior commitments, which were his touring dates. And that really pissed off some people who thought Dylan was turning up his nose at the prize. I don't think that was the case. At the award ceremony in December, 
Patti Smith showed up to accept the award for Dylan and performed a stirring version of Hard Rain's Are Gonna Fall. Finally, in April 2017, when Dylan was in Stockholm for a concert, arrangements were made for Dylan to meet with the committee and get his award, which also came with $900,000 cash. Academy Secretary Sarah Danius reported on the scene, Earlier today, the Swedish Academy met with Bob Dylan for a private ceremony in Stockholm, during which Dylan received his gold medal and diploma. Twelve members of the Academy were present. Spirits were high. Champagne was had. And then, on June 5, 2017, Dylan's Nobel Lecture was posted on the Academy website. And it's quite a spectacular piece of work. Dylan recites a speech nearly 30 minutes long with piano accompaniment by the pianist Alan Pasqua. I've posted a link on our website, links page for this episode, or you can find it on the internet. Dylan speaks at length about various influences on him and his work and focuses on three works of literature as examples of books that impacted him in a major way. The Odyssey, Moby Dick, and All Quiet on the Western Front by Eric Maria Remark. And dang it, wouldn't you know it, but some internet sleuth with a deerstalker hat and a magnifying glass figured out that once again, Dylan had cribbed some lines from an existing source. Plagiarism right there in the acceptance speech for the Nobel Prize in Literature. Talk about irony. But the best part is is what the source of Dylan's words was, what he took from. He took words and lines from summaries in the Sparknotes versions of these literary works. And Sparknotes is like the modern version of Cliff Notes. Probably Dylan asked for a summary of these works to help him along, and he got a little carried away or lazy when he was writing out the 4,000 words of the speech. You can rest assured, though, or you can listen for yourself, but the heart of the speech comes straight from Dylan's heart, and nowhere else. Whatever people thought of Dylan getting the Nobel Prize, it put an interesting twist in how Dylan is perceived. Maybe it separates him a little bit from the group of male classic rockers or the singer-songwriters, and it seems to confer a little more seriousness upon the pursuit of listening to and thinking about Dylan. Even if you think the Nobel Prize is a bunch of nonsense or that Dylan didn't deserve it, it feels like a shift happened in how the culture thinks about Dylan, if and when it does think about him. And part of that shift was amplified and expanded out even more as news of the Bob Dylan Archive and the Bob Dylan Center, two linked institutions taking shape in Tulsa, Oklahoma, began to filter through the media. When you tell people there's going to be a Bob Dylan Center and Archive in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the first question most people ask is, why Tulsa? The answer to that is a little bit straightforward, a little bit cool, and a little bit Dylan-esque. The straightforward answer is that the Tulsa community, including Tulsa University, put together a very appealing package. They promised they would provide superb, state-of-the-art facilities and the bid was financed in part by the George Kaiser Organization, which is centered in Tulsa. George Kaiser is a billionaire philanthropist who's done some wonderful things for the people of Oklahoma, especially for children's welfare 
and well-being, but also for cultural initiatives. Secondly, what's cool about Tulsa and Oklahoma is that the town and region have a very strong musical history, much richer than you might guess and probably disproportionate to the area's population. The list of amazing musicians who've come from Oklahoma is long and deep. And Woody Guthrie, Bob Dylan's great mentor, was born about 70 miles south of Tulsa in the town of Okama, Oklahoma. And Woody Guthrie had an archive too, all of his writings and materials, and that archive was moved to Tulsa from New York City in 2013, with a lot of help from George Kaiser, and this sort of greased the skids and opened a lot of connections that enabled the Dillon Papers to follow Woody's down to Oklahoma. Clearly, it was important and meaningful for Dillon to know that the permanent archive of his work would come to life just a few blocks from Woody's stuff. Tulsa and Oklahoma also have a long history as a region of great significance to both African Americans and indigenous Americans. Numerous tribes continue to live in Oklahoma in large numbers, with the Choctaw and Cherokee tribes comprising about half a million people in the state. So I would think that that has meaning for Dillon as well. And finally, the Dillon-esque part is that I think it was important for this material to end up somewhere that was not New York City not Los Angeles, not Chicago or Seattle. Minnesota would probably have been great, but Tulsa is a surprising and wonderful choice for what promises to become a world-class institution. I've made a few trips to the archive and seen some of the plans for the Bob Dylan Center, and it's going to be an amazing place when it's all up and running. The public opening of the Bob Dylan Center is scheduled for sometime in 2021. Just the fact of the archive and the center being in Tulsa have already had a reinvigorating effect on the city. It's quite an interesting place. I'll just read a couple of lines from the official Bob Dylan Center website, which will give you some idea of what's coming down. A place to study and appreciate the life and work of Bob Dylan, the Bob Dylan Center is committed to exploring the myriad forms of creativity that enrich the world around us. When it opens in the Tulsa Arts District in 2021, the center will serve to educate, motivate, and inspire visitors to engage their own capacity as creators. Through exhibits, public programs, performances, lectures, and publications, the center aims to foster a conversation about the role of creativity in our lives. As a primary public venue for the Bob Dylan Archive collection, the center will curate and exhibit a priceless collection of more than 100,000 items spanning Dylan's career, including handwritten manuscripts, notebooks and correspondence, films, videos, photographs, and artwork, memorabilia and ephemera, personal documents and effects, unreleased studio and concert recordings, musical instruments, and many other elements. If that got your heart rate up, you know you're a true Dylan fan. So now it's time to talk about Dylan's deep dive into what they call the Great American Songbook, which is a loosely defined group of songs from the middle of the last century, more or less, mostly Broadway show tunes or tunes from musicals or movies with music written by composers and lyricists like Harold Arlen, Cole Porter, Jimmy Van Heusen, George Gershwin, Johnny Mercer, people like that. So when I was a kid, this is what we thought of as old people's music. And personally, it mostly made me cringe until I got a little older. Of course, 
the titanic interpreter of the great American songbook is Frank Sinatra, and he's certainly the person today most associated with these songs, although so many great artists have interpreted them, from Billie Holiday to Tony Bennett to Peggy Lee. And there have been a couple of more recent mainstream artists who've done albums of these standards that have become pillars of pop culture. I'm thinking of What's New by Linda Ronstadt, using string arrangements by Nelson Riddle, who did the classic Sinatra string arrangements in the late 50s and early 60s. And there's also the album Stardust by Willie Nelson, which kind of set the standard for this kind of thing, and which includes his monster hit version of George On My Mind that almost eclipsed the Ray Charles version in the ears of the public. Almost. Dylan's often flirted with these songs from the Great American Songbook in the past. Way back in 2009, he recorded a song for the soundtrack of the Sopranos TV series called Return to Me that had been a hit for Dean Martin in 1958. And we've already talked about Dylan's cover of You Belong to Me from the Good As I've Been to You sessions. And there are other examples of Dylan dipping his toe into the waters of the Great American Songbook throughout much of his career. But then, in 2015, he releases an album called Shadows in the Night. Ten songs that are all covers and all from this tradition. And most of the songs were popularized originally by Frank Sinatra. And most people thought Dylan was just coasting a little and maybe trying to make a quick buck. Although Dylan had long made clear how important these songs were to him. And the album was pretty well received, although it seems not all that many people and certainly not all that many Dylan fans paid too much listening attention to this record of standards. So what does Dylan do? The following year, in 2016, he releases a second album of pop standards called Fallen Angels. Again, a terrific collection of old chestnuts. And people, again, just seem to think that Dylan might have been having a little bit of writer's block, but wanted to keep making records. And what does Dylan do after that? The following year, in 2017, he releases another set of pop standards, almost all of them, again, made popular first by Frank Sinatra. But this time, Dylan doesn't release just a single album. He releases a triple set of discs called Triplicate. So now, in the space of less than three years, Dylan has put out more than 50 cover versions of songs from the Great American Songbook, some extremely well-known, like Autumn Leaves or As Time Goes By, and some more obscure, like The Night We Called It A Day or There's a Flaw in My Flu. I'm going to talk about all of these releases together, even though there are some differences between the albums. They also flow together and do seem more of a set than three different releases. Basically, Dylan spent three years trying to get to the beating heart of these standards. What Dylan himself said about this project is this. I don't see myself as covering these songs in any way. They've been covered enough, buried as a matter of fact. What me and my band are basically doing is uncovering them, lifting them out of the grave and bringing them back into the light of day. Rather than mimicking the original records with syrupy string arrangements, Dylan mostly used his battle-tested touring band, and the instrumentation is fairly sparse, with a mellow guitar tone and steel guitar being the dominant sounds for most of these songs. Some of the songs have strings, and there are a few tasteful horn arrangements here and there, but it's pretty subtle stuff for the most part.
geek recording note here. The press about these records reported that Dylan and the band recorded live in the legendary Capitol Records Studio A in Hollywood, which is also where Sinatra recorded all of his classic albums in the late 50s and early 60s. Studio A is huge, 2,700 square feet, so there's enough space for an entire orchestra to record along with the singer. And as I read these reports of Dylan and the band recording live in the studio with Dylan at the microphone while the band played behind him, I thought maybe that was just promotional hype. But then I came across an amazing film clip of Sinatra recording That Was a Very Good Year in Studio A, and you can see Sinatra at the mic as Nelson Riddle is conducting the orchestra around him. It's hard to believe that those gorgeous-sounding records could have been made that way, but they were, and I'm pretty sure now that the Dylan records we're talking about here were recorded in much the similar fashion. Please check out the link to the Sinatra video clip I've posted on the website on the episode 15 page. It's really amazing to see Sinatra nail his vocal in the middle of all that beautifully orchestrated chaos. So what are we to make of Dylan as crooner? In some ways, for me, these songs are the hardest to talk about of all the work Dylan's done. Of course, there's the somewhat obvious layer of Dylan paying a kind of homage to this fundamental block of American culture, doing it his way, all the way. And there's also Dylan as musicologist who wants to educate us, although he'd probably barf if he heard that. But Dylan has chosen these songs carefully, and each one is a gem of some brilliance even though many were on the verge of being forgotten or at least badly neglected. And then we could talk about Dylan singing on these records and rehash the whole Dylan is a great singer, Dylan can't sing merry-go-round of nonsense. One thing that can't really be argued about Dylan singing on these records is the care he's taken and effort he's making to translate the purest vision of the song that he's able to. What you're hearing is exactly how Dylan hears these songs in his mind even if there are clear echoes of singers who've sung these songs before him. Another thing that strikes me about this set of songs is that it's hard for me to imagine any young person connecting with these versions. Even someone in their 30s, today in the modern world, that would be someone born, let's say, in the 1980s. Seems like a stretch that Dylan's particular stamp on this music could resonate with that generation. I hope I'm wrong about this, and that millions of teenagers are grooving to these records, but it's hard to imagine right now. I listened to these three releases, Shadows in the Night, Fallen Angels, and Triplicate, a lot in preparation for this broadcast. Maybe 20 or 30 listens through the entire set. And the deeper in I got, the more it felt like these versions of songs that had been recorded many times and known for many years are, ironically, sui generis, which is Latin for its own kind or unique, which doesn't really compute. But that's the way these songs feel to me. It takes a little while to shake off the comparisons to Sinatra or Tony Bennett or Billie Holiday And then it takes a little more time before you stop trying to discern if Dylan's hitting the right note or using some kind of quirky inflection. And then finally, after a long time, but all of a sudden you just fall into the whole thing, like throwing yourself onto the bed after a long day. And as you lie there looking up at the ceiling, the songs say something slightly different than they've communicated in the past. I'm very partial to Billie Holiday and any version she does of an old standard, 
and she was able to do something similar with her versions, where she would sing a popular song and bring a new layer of sadness, melancholy, or regret that you hadn't picked up on before. Now, there are a few numbers out of this set that you might categorize as being on the lighter side, a little bit humorous, maybe like Polka Dots and Moonbeams or Skylark, but the great and vast majority of these 50-plus songs are gut-wrenchingly sad. Take a song like You Go To My Head, and especially the last couple of lines, which are, Though I'm certain that this heart of mine hasn't a ghost of a chance in this crazy romance, you go to my head. When Sinatra sings those lines, it feels like a tribute to an overpoweringly strong attraction. Billie Holiday certainly puts the melancholy into the verse, but there's a wistfulness to her take. When Dylan sings it, it's a man drowning his sorrows at a lonely bar about an attraction that is and will always remain out of reach, utterly impossible. And there's a kind of hopeless resignation and pain that oozes out of these tracks. Not physical pain, but the pain of existence, which Dylan seems to feel at an extremely deep level. At least it seems that way if you listen to his songs, and especially the songs he's released in the last 20 or so years. Pain might be the strongest thread holding Dylan's recent work together, and the weave of that thread in Dylan's music just gets thicker and denser through time. And while it might seem dark or depressing or a downer to think of pain so prominently in Dylan's work, I don't see it that way. If you think about the blues, first of all, and then its offshoots, which would be gospel music, country music, and jazz, a lot of pain underlies those forms as well. And of course, all those forms got electrified into rock and roll. And although there's certainly a good dose of pain in many rock songs, rock and roll is primarily about a kind of rebellion and release. And women, of course. And men, too. So, although I think Dylan has made some fabulous rock and roll music, his overall body of work really flows from the river of these other older forms. And pain, I think, is the rock's that lie fast at the bottom of that enormous river which carries everything, everything along with it. So, throughout 2015 and 2016 and 2017, Dylan was out on the road again, and he performed a varying mix of some of his older songs with a few more recent songs, but the set list was heavily weighted with these old standards we've been talking about. And while it was cool to see and hear Dylan singing these songs live, it wasn't all that exciting. There were high points, of course, but there was also a little bit of the feel of the old legend doing the old legendary songs tour. And then in 2018, Dylan went out on the road again, but this time the Sinatra songs were pretty much gone from the set list. And Dylan concluded his run of shows with six concerts at the Beacon Theater in New York. The year before, in 2017, Dylan wrapped up the year with five concerts at the Beacon. I didn't get to see Dylan in 2018, but in the summer of 2019, he announced a fall U.S. tour starting on the West Coast and ending with 10 shows at the Beacon in New York City. And I was lucky enough to get tickets for the second night of the tour, when Dylan performed under a full moon at the Santa Barbara Bowl that October. I had the sense that Dylan finishing with 10 straight shows at one venue may have indicated something. 
possibly the end of touring for him for a while, or maybe even permanently. After all, he was 78 years old, and maybe the 30-plus years of spending so many nights out were getting to him. So I went all in and I bought a ticket to the last New York show and flew out in early December to see Dylan. Then what did Dylan do? He went and added one final show to the tour in Washington, D.C., two nights after closing at the Beacon in New York City. So, in an odd show of symmetry, I was lucky enough to see the second show of the tour and the second-to-last show of the tour. And both of the concerts I saw were wonderful. For 2019, Dylan kept the same band he'd been working with with two changes. The 2019 edition of the Dylan Band was the indomitable Tony Garnier on bass, the indivisible Charlie Sexton on guitar, the inscrutable Donnie Heron on pedal steel and violin, plus a new additional guitarist named Bob Britt, who previously played with Dylan on the Time Out of Mind record, and a new drummer, Matt Chamberlain. And the band sounded great, but Dylan's bands are always pretty great. I didn't see any of the shows in 2018, so I can't compare, but I got a very special feel from the two 2019 concerts that I did see. I've seen Dylan's shows in five decades, which is ridiculous. But 2019 was the first time that I felt a kind of acceptance in the air of a Dylan concert, for lack of a better word, both from Dylan, the performer, and his audience. Before this, there'd always been this tension between the audience expectation and Dylan's performance. But these 2019 shows felt different. I don't want to suggest that it was something bland or easy. There was a kind of awe and appreciation finally for what Dylan was doing in the moment as opposed to wishing he'd do more old songs or play more harmonica or sing more clearly or anything like that. If you listen to the various audience recordings that exist from the 2019 shows, there are a few wonderful renditions here and there, but overall the tapes don't sound that spectacular or that different from let's say 2018. Still, I really felt something different sitting in the audience. You might not call these Dylan's greatest live performances, but they were very direct and very emotionally moving. And I've spoken to lots of people and read many accounts from fans who've seen many shows, and many of them agreed that these 2019 concerts were something special. And so, as 2019 came to a close, I had the sense that Dylan might be taking a break from touring and he hadn't released any new, original material in more than seven years, and it seemed possible that there might not be any more new Dylan songs. And then, 2020 arrived. 2020. All bets were off, and all bets went out the window. First, Dylan announced a new tour of Japan for the month of April, and then in early March, just as news about the COVID-19 virus began to intensify, Dylan announced a summer concert tour for the U.S. In the wake of the spreading pandemic and the worldwide stay-at-home orders, the scheduled concerts in Japan and the U.S. were soon canceled. Around the middle of March, people in the United States began sheltering in place, and after a few days, many people found themselves living a quite different reality than what had been in place previously. Overnight, I stopped leaving my house and spent most waking hours standing at my computer trying to work, 
in between checking social media for the latest news and funny memes and animal videos and streaming music concerts, this was almost non-stop. Meanwhile, the world outside was raging. And on Thursday, March 26, 2020, about two weeks into this new reality, when it was beginning to really take hold, I was standing at my computer a little after nine at night when I started to see notifications about a new Dylan song. Was that possible? And then suddenly, there it was, posted to Dylan's official website, a new song called Murder Most Foul. The song is just shy of 17 minutes long the longest song Dylan's ever recorded. And it wasn't immediately clear if the song was new or if Dylan had recorded it a while back and just decided to release it in the middle of the strange new time. On the official Dylan Twitter feed, Dylan released the following message along with the song. Greetings to my fans and followers with gratitude for all your support and loyalty across the years, he said. This is an unreleased song we recorded a while back that you might find interesting. Stay safe, stay observant, and may God be with you. The song, Murder Most Foul, is completely astonishing. It's a slow dirge about the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, full of lurid details and touching on certain theories that Kennedy was killed by forces other than the lone gunman Lee Harvey Oswald. The song then rolls into a recitation of figures from pop culture, starting with both the Wolfman and Wolfman Jack, but then evolves into a litany of song titles, some with a pun or twist attached to the song title. The song is, like all great Dylan songs, impossible to truly describe. The power comes in the listening, and this one is 17 minutes of powerful. There's no need for me to try and unpack the references in the song or its potential meanings, lots of smart people responded within days of the song's release with some cogent and intelligent criticism and explication of the song, as well as lots of words spilled about the greater significance of the song and the timing of its release. On our website's links page for this episode, I've included a link to another Dylan podcast called Definitely Dylan, with an episode devoted entirely to Murder Most Foul. I can just say that for me personally, it's been a long time since I've been this excited about a new Dylan release, and listening over and over to the song on the night it was released in the middle of everything that was going on in the world was as powerful a Dylan experience as I've had in my life, other than seeing him live. Crazily, and only time will tell for sure, it felt as if Dylan somehow got fused back with a zeitgeist in a way that he hadn't been for more than 40 years not since the mid-60s. It's as if, after all the water under the bridge about Dylan abandoning protest music all those many years ago, here comes a new song, not a protest song, but a song that somehow feels itself like an act of protest. Listening to Dylan suddenly became an unmediated experience for the first time in a long time, and Dylan was just getting warmed up, I guess. (laughs) 
three weeks after Murder Most Foul, another new song appeared on Dylan's official website and the usual channels. Parenthetically, I learned something new about the music business, such as it is nowadays, which is that new music is regularly released on the standard streaming services on Friday, or technically on Thursdays at midnight, East Coast time. The reason for this has to do with maximizing plays for sales charts because Billboard tracks sales from Friday to Thursday, and also because apparently the streaming services update their playlists on Friday. Who knew? So, at midnight on Thursday, April 16th, Dylan released a second new song. It's called I Contain Multitudes, taking its title from a key line in Walt Whitman's monumental book of poetry, Leaves of Grass. And on the first dozen or so listens, it seems very much like a companion piece to Murder Most Foul. It's certainly not as long, but it feels like the internal, personal expression of where Dylan's at, while Murder Most Foul spins a more outward, external story. And if you think the Dylan world was jumping after Murder Most Foul dropped, now people were positively dizzy with speculation. Were these two songs part of a new album? What was happening? All was revealed soon enough, on Thursday, May 7th, 2020. At some point that day, an illustration appeared on Dylan's website with the title, False Prophet. So with most people home because of the COVID-19 pandemic and fiddling on their computers, everybody abnormally invested in Dylan News started posting and texting and tweeting and wondering if False Prophet might be a third new song. So, at 9 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on that Thursday, I logged into the Superbrain, and a minute or two later, suddenly a new Dylan song appeared, and it was called False Prophet, and it was fantastic. Not only that, there was also an announcement that Dylan would be releasing a brand new album on June 19, 2020, his first album of original material in eight years, since Tempest. The new album includes these three new songs released at midnight across the internet and the album's titled Rough and Rowdy Ways. The title derived from the old Jimmy Rogers song My Rough and Rowdy Ways. For a good while now, I've been thinking that this last episode of a Bob Dylan primer would end with some kind of summation of where Dylan's been And then the 2019 tour seemed like a fitting capstone to what we've been talking about. And then, here goes Dylan pulling the cloth off the table full of dishes, the rabbit out of the hat and the rug right out from underneath us, with these three wonderful new songs and more to come. I'm purposely going to wrap this up before the new album comes out. It's never been my intention with this series to analyze the songs, and I don't want to start now. In an extremely activated moment in our history, the light of Dylan releasing a new album shines very bright upon the world, and I feel there's nothing I can add to that right now. What is Bob Dylan? Did we find out? No, of course not. That's the surprise trick ending to this series of broadcasts. We can't know what Bob Dylan is, ultimately. He remains and will remain one of our great mysteries. Now, that's not to say we can't learn a whole lot about what Bob Dylan is and 
what he means for each of us individually. That process can be lifelong. And hopefully a Bob Dylan primer has laid a few stepping stones along that path. As Dylan himself sniffed when asked about the so-called never-ending tour, nothing lasts forever. And that applies to this series of broadcasts as well. But really, what I'm talking about is the creative output of the human being we call Bob Dylan. His words, his writing, his appearances and performances, and most of all, his songs. Sixty years is an astonishing span of time to work at any job. But to create new material for that long a period is simply amazing. It's not like Dylan's being propped up on stage to sing ten hits over and over again. He's still writing new songs, making films, writing books. Hell, we haven't even mentioned his paintings, his metal sculptures, or his whiskey making, for crying out loud. At some point, there won't be any more new stuff. And that gnawing thought, is something that most true Dylan people won't breach in conversation, and one that we try to keep at bay as much as humanly possible. And I'm bringing it up here for just one reason. To insist that if you care about Bob Dylan's music a lot, or even just a little, that you absolutely must be completely satisfied and grateful for what he has allowed to pass through his voice into our ears and souls. Because it's going to be hard for me to stop thinking about this series, and because I'm extremely grateful to all those of you who've taken the time to listen to some or all of these broadcasts, I welcome the opportunity to respond to any questions about Dylan's work or particular moments or ideas that you're curious about, and possibly include thoughts about those in a future episode. As Dylan sings, I have nothing but affection for those who have traveled with me. Also, as new material emerges and events develop, I'm open to adding episodes about new things as well, of course. But that's all for now. The email is info at abobdylanprimer.com, and there's also an email link on the website, which is www.abobdylanprimer.com. My name is Michael Hacker. Thank you for listening.